I'm really looking forward to this podcast and, and hearing all of the stories from all of the women I can reach. I want to interview everybody. <laughs> Every Black woman yes. I see who's a mother, I'm like, I, what is your story? I want to hear your story too. <laughs> like, Welcome to Melanated Mom Talk, our very first episode. And I want to begin with the why, why I am doing this podcast. There are two common stereotypes that Black women in America face in the space of mothering. There's the mammy image, and there is the angry welfare queen image. These two stereotypes are so far from our truth. It has nothing to do with who we are as Black women, as Black mothers, and I feel that representation matters. And so we need to keep talking and sharing our stories because no one can tell our stories like we can. So my intention with this podcast is to highlight Black mothers, period. And so each episode of Melanated Mom Talk will have a different mom friend of mine on to share their experience. And, um, my theory is that we're all having very different experiences and there is no one who is better at taking theories and breaking it down so it can forever and consistently be broke than the incomparable Dr. Carol Boyce Davies, our guest today, who is also my mother. Hi, mommy. Hi, thank you. What a great introduction. That is amazing. Um, just in case you don't know, this is a big get. A lot of us know the names like Cornell West. A lot of us know Henry Louis Gates, but the women clearly have been putting down work. And I am so proud to say that my mother is in the forefront. She is a distinguished scholar of the African diaspora. She has been named the Caribbean queen mother of Africana, Carol Boyce Davies, the original CBD. Mommy, you were born in Trinidad. Trinidad and Tobago, we have to add. So yes. Sweet, sweet TNT. Uh, Afro-Caribbean scholar um, who came to the U.S. during the Black Power period. Absolutely. You received your master's degree from Howard University. You. Um, you were there during the years when CRL James was on faculty. Legendary, iconic work was being done. You are a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. You received your PhD in African and Caribbean literature from the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. You were under the Commonwealth Scholarship and were sent from the government of Trinidad and Tobago to represent. That's right. Absolutely. Which is, I mean, beyond. Looking back, it's major. And I, you know, I, you take things for granted sometimes. And when you think about it, you're like, wow, that's pretty big. That was pretty that big. Is huge, that is huge, huge, actually. Um, you met my father there. You had my sister. You came back to Trinidad the same year as the revolution in Grenada, um, just one island away. And then when you came back to the U.S. to begin your North American academic legacy, you came in a time of Black women and Black women writers who were also standing up in their feminist criticisms and womanism's criticisms. So all of these things are coming out of you. <laughs> you actually lived and touched all of these areas. And that is why you are a distinguished scholar 
And to say all of that, and you are my mother. <laughs> you That's are my right. Sister's That's the most mother. important piece, actually, that you just gave. It's, yeah, I, um, my life has always been a way to balance um, as a professional woman, my love and care for my children with my work. And it's not easy as one learns as you go through the, the experience oneself, because that balance has to be so well tuned. And, and often you find you worry about one side overweighing the other, but. I think I'm one of the people who found a way to do it. And you often still question, did I do it right? Did I, what did I do right or wrong? Some of my friends didn't bother to have any children at all, it seems. Yeah, and I come yeah, yeah. they're all still colleagues, but I'm still proud when I show up and I can say, this is my daughter. These are her children. These are her grand, these are my granddaughters. So this is my grandson. And many of them can't say that. So I think I did something right. Yes. I'm really looking forward to um, this podcast and, and hearing all of the stories from all of the women I can reach. I want to interview everybody. <laughs> Every Black woman yes. I see who's a mother, I'm like, I, what is your story? I want to hear your story too. <laughs> like, um, so, Professor, tell me, what are your thoughts today on Black History Month and Kwanzaa? Do we still need to uphold these things or does it keep us marginalized? Okay. We, we well, fit, I think, should we not be fitting um, all of Black history into one small month? Exactly. The logic from um, our field and my field is Black studies writ large, but also its variations in Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, Brazil, um, the African diaspora then, that Black history is actually a daily thing for us. So it's it can't be located in a month. However, we seize the opportunity to use that space to let to reach more community and to let people be more informed. So it's more a marketing thing now, I believe, than it is like saying all black history will fit into that space. And I think the same with Kwanzaa. And the only point about Kwanzaa is that now we have options and we can celebrate it along with other things. Whereas before it was defined as you have to do Kwanzaa and if you don't, you're not really down and so on. But I think now people sell, integrate it into their lives. It's meaning in terms of not over-consuming, in terms of reaching out to community, in terms of, you know, celebrating our arts or creativity ourselves or, or ability to live in the world in spite of all odds. So I think we have to see these things as tools, as opportunities, as opposed to defining identities. Okay, let's move on to spanking. Okay. <laughs> what? I'm the last one to, to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, I talk with my class about that because we read some texts where the colonial pattern um, had to be, and it comes down from enslavement, actually, had to be yes. that if you don't discipline the body, then the person is not going to do what you want them to do and behave and so on. Uh, in the colonial schools, I mean, all of us, was spanked. I got spanked in school. My mother did not spank me. And I always tell my children I felt guilty about that because my mother was obviously a better parent than I was. Oh, no. <laughs> she, yeah, my mother was really upset because my aunt spanked me once and she came and she told her, don't ever do that again. Um, so my mother was the kind that was not spanking um, me and really worked, I guess, with a more advanced way of being a mother uh, than I did. In my case, it was linked often to trying to balance everything, go to work, come home and have a kid who is not right. um, getting ready on time so that you could get out and get to your class to right. teach and so on. So it comes from a lot of stress. 
uh, and, and also after that, a feeling of regret and deep remorse and so on. And my position now is that people really shouldn't spank children at all. But of course, my right. kids are like, yeah, right. But I think it's a failure of parenting when you have to spank. Do you think spanking, though, the concept of spanking is kind of ingrained in the black community? Because it's almost now to the point where everybody can has a story and can laugh and be like, I wouldn't be who I was today if I didn't get spanked. And you did, too. Yeah, I still have students telling me this. And that's really devastating. Usually it's black kids because a lot of the white kids don't say that. Yes. So I still have them up until this past semester where we talked about that, saying the same thing. There's a really interesting writer who used to write for the Washington Post named Stacey Patton. And she has a lot of nice articles where she challenges that reading. And she links it to the fact that of, of the policing of black bodies, the way right. in which the culture has made us feel that the parents have to brutalize you at home and then so you won't be brutalized in the streets. But her point is it doesn't really matter that you could right. do whatever and still run afoul of these oppressive forces outside of the um, the home. So therefore, it doesn't justify that punishment that one should get um, in, you know, especially on, on young black boys in particular. So right. I think we have to work at, it's the thing you have to work at. Work against yeah. and struggle within yourself, uh, and um, work against the 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 logic of having to to meet out um, particular sort of punishment like spanking. Right. So, so I'm sorry <laughs> that I have on to record. say that now because on I record, on record. <laughs> <laughs> so let's. Oh, speaking of Janelle too, my big sister. What are your thoughts on raising young feminists and talking back? I know my daughter is quick to talk back. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to silence her. I don't want to get into a pattern of silencing her. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, yeah, I, I believe talking back is part of growing up. And this is when I said, uh, in my case, probably in my schooling, got spanked for merely talk being rude. It was probably talking back because a lot of the the patterns of control, whether it's in the school or in the home, assume you should just accept and not say anything. But I, I think we can't discourage the talking back. I remember there's a piece Bell Hooks wrote, which actually was referring to Janelle, who had left a note under my door at the end of an exchange we had where she said, sorry if I talk back, but I too have my say. Uh, so it was a whole um, piece that she wrote about it called Talking Back. So I think they have to learn that they can speak up, but they have to learn, everybody, we all do, including the adults, that there's a way that you speak back or you speak up so that you're not really, you're not offensive, but you can see what your position is that you want to articulate. And that's what we have to teach, really. Not right. to silence, but how to do it. How? And whether you're in a business meeting or whether you're in a classroom, because it's disconcerting if you have a class and students just sit there and you ask a question and nobody says a word. Um, and usually the guys speak. Some right. of the young women who know that they should speak, speak. But a lot of times, many of the classes don't. And you have to tell them, I want to hear your voice. And some of them are like, I, I don't have any ideas. Yes, you do. So I usually right. tell all of my classes, everybody in my class, I want to hear your voice. I don't know what your voice sounds like. I need to hear you. So this is, um, they have to learn to articulate. It's amazing. 
It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So kind of like in conjunction with that, um, this conversation of the strong black woman in society versus in the home. I wonder about that. Um, like I don't have any memories of seeing you cry. I don't. And I don't know. My mother's funeral, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Correction. (laughs) Correction. Yes. And that shook my body to the core. I can feel the vibration of that right now because it was a sound I had never heard. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I just wonder what is that? What, what has been your experience with that? Did you feel that crying in front of your children is, is that just a level of vulnerability that wasn't, there wasn't time for that? There wasn't a place for that? What? Some people are not criers. I'm not a real crier, but sometimes it is come, you know, come to that way. Nothing else but tears can express it. I think in black culture, we try to teach black girls that they should not be criers because the culture doesn't support that. Uh, For example, white women can break down in tears whenever they feel like it, sometimes just for not getting their point in a meeting or feeling like you challenge them or something like that. So for them, tears are strategic. People talk about that now. And for black women, it doesn't work the same way. So I remember having a couple of occasions where I told Janelle in particular, well, she's a crier, that Mm -hmm. you better not let them see you cry. Because the point is, that's one of the ways that people sometimes see your vulnerability and think they can take advantage as opposed to really run into your aid as is done often for white women. And that's a big stereotype, but it's, it's pretty consistent. We've seen it's it consistent. happen so many times. Um, so but is there a I space think, where black women should be able to weaponize those tears? Well, I, it, it depends on if the culture is going to, is going to say, yes, your tears. I can, you know, I've seen so many black women, in encounters where they're crying and the police still arresting them or whatever. I don't think it works exactly the same way. Um, And even for missing a flight or trying to get something else, I've seen them go to tears and people like, well, I'm sorry, I can't help. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, there's a psychological uh, research, a set of psychological research projects, which talk about them saying that black a woman's pain does not get the same equivalence even by medical doctors in terms of how they medicate you, in terms of dealing with how you feel, whether it's in childbirth, whether it's uh, all sorts of other uh, situations. So I think there's a dominant culture in which black young girls and black women are punished more and not uh, seen as having the same degree of pain and so on. So the culture itself doesn't recognize that. Uh, so how do we, I think we can't let that challenge our humanity and how we respond to emotional situations, whether joy, sadness, grief, or what have you. And I think for, in my case, losing my mother is like the most intense grief I've ever had in my life, actually Mm. followed by my brother. Um, But that's the whole thing, losing family members, um, where you really feel that deep pain. In my brother's case, I was more angry than I was in grief as I was with my mother. So the grief came out as anger. Um, because of a number of factors. Um, so, and I actually still have pain about that. I still cry inside. I cry if I drive past Maryland and know I can't uh, go in there to see him and so on. So, yeah, but I think because I grew up the way I did, um, with a single mother who is still in a, an extended family, but without my father present, 
my mother probably worked really hard, I think, to make sure I was a self-sufficient woman because she knew I would have to take care of myself. And she set me up for that uh, in a way that I think sometimes is probably both good and bad. And the good is that I have been able to achieve quite a lot of what I wanted to and even more than I even intended to. And yes. the bad is that sometimes it means that you sort of shortchange yourself and you don't give yourself enough space to be vulnerable or dependent or what have you. And I think that's where I am right now. So what are your thoughts on going back to work after having a child versus staying at home? I think we should be happy if we have the space. In many cultures around the world, women are given six months or a year yeah. to be with year. their children. This is an American problem where you only have like two weeks sometimes and some people have no time at all um, to to be with their children. And I think finding, um, hopefully the policy people, uh, the new women in Congress and so on will push this forward, but there should be more time given to women to be able to enjoy and help raise their children for a nice period of time. And a year is not bad. So one should not feel regretful about not having to work. You should be happy that you have the space to do that. However, it's a time also to to think ahead of what the future will be like. Uh, so once you do it and you have the opportunity to have that space to really help raise your children as opposed to sending them to somebody else every morning, then what is the next phase? Because children grow really quickly and they will leave you behind. They, I mean, as... You know, once you get to that point of independence, very rare is it that a child uh, comes back home. Some do, of course, but often not for long. So you have to, the, the woman has to also find a way that her life is going to evolve into the future. And I think that's the time when one should really think through that, uh, that whole um, re-entering then the space of productive contribution to the larger society besides mothering. I think is right. what I want to frame that as. So no regrets, but then what does one do after that phase of one's life, I think is really critical. Right. Um, so two more points, and then um, I think we're going to wrap out because, as we know, mothers generally don't have a lot of time. <laughs> time. <laughs> time is so special. What are your thoughts on... Education, which is loaded. I know this is a loaded question saying to you, but some people feel like maybe you don't have to go to college anymore. Some people feel like getting into the world and starting your company is where you need to gain your traction and all this stuff. What's your conversation or what's your experience as being a black mother sending your children to school and making that be a mandatory thing versus something that is optional? Okay. I think. Because I'm an educator, I have to be on the side of education. Yes. <laughs> of yes. And and I think it's there's a value in going to college and university because it's a space to think and read and reflect. I have students in my class last semester who this was the first time they ever encountered any real discussion about the Caribbean ever. Wow. Where would they get that? Um, so if you never, and they say, for example, in no other right. class have they talked about questions of, what it means to be a tourist, what it means for the Caribbean people who are home, what it means to for the indigenous people whose land got taken, and how does it link to what happens with the appropriation of land in the United States as well. 
But for people who want to actively quickly get out and make money and get into the workforce, it, they may feel that they can abandon it and catch it later, which really really doesn't happen. But you, invariably, they will need somebody to work with them who has had that knowledge applied. Uh, if you don't have that knowledge applied about Africa, about the whole world, you hardly get it in high school. And I think unless you are like an avid reader who catches up on everything all the time, you're not going to get it either. So it will be just a big gap. And then we get to those really horrible representations that you find in the media sometimes where you say, well, somebody in that group should have been able to tell them that that was wrong. Um, or that's what stereotype that is meeting, that you shouldn't really do that. Right. Um, and so on. So I think there are some gaps again that that knowledge um, is able to fill if you are able to take advantage of it at a particular point in history. But hats off to those who are able to to make the shortcut. Not everybody can do it, though. There's a few people who make it that way. So I think it's a fallacy that people think that everybody's going to have that quick route to success. Not really. Which leads me into the last topic. What is your experience traveling as a Black mother with small children? Oh, I think it's such a joy. For me, it was anyway. Because I loved, I remember when I first went to the Caribbean with you and your sister, I remember Janelle standing in front of the airport in Jamaica. <laughs> and I'm not from Jamaica, but she understood the connection. And she said, Mommy, I think I, I understand why you are the way you are. Because I used to play calypso music in the morning when you all were small and wake you all yeah. up. And I was yeah. doing silly dances and they would look at me like, is she crazy? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, what am I so favorite that, um, So that to me was a joy to be able to show you my world. And sometimes a lot of places I go and I just wish, like I was in Germany last year and I was like, oh my God, this is a place I wish my kids would have seen when they were little because it was like a story a storybook world, you know, mm -hmm. um, in this part of Germany. So um, I love the idea of traveling, but of course it's, it, it carries with it a lot of preparation, but it's a way of seeing the world and it's a knowledge base. So definitely one should be able to be portable with kids. And I used to just put my uh, children in pajamas early in the morning and we would drive all the way to Baltimore by 10 o'clock. We'd be there. They'd be just waking up. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you have to sometimes be flexible with children, but let them have opportunities to see the world and be happy afterwards. I love it. Mommy, mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I thank love you. you. Love you so I much. love so you. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk again. Yes. Yes. Some more melanated mom talk. <laughs> Good job. 